Well, hello, Costi. <laughs> hey, good to be here with good, you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for being willing to talk about this great topic of worship. I know it's a, an issue you're passionate about. It's one I'm passionate about as well. Uh, you have a great story. We'll get into that a little bit later, but you're a, kind of an authority on the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, uh, and on worship. It's an, so let's start there. Let's understand a little bit just the background of the prosperity gospel and how it understands worship and singing uh, in, in its context. Yeah, so I'll contrast it now being in the Bible church world. Okay. Um, in, in the Bible church world, we would view worship as all-encompassing, right? Mm-hmm. Not just about music, but about the Word, about service and our giving. All, worship is a, is a way of life. It's a lifestyle. And people, if they were to come to our, our churches that are more biblically driven, and they're just coming for the music, they're going to be wildly disappointed because there's a, a tip of the spear that's coming, and it's the preaching of God's Word. And there's worship that goes on for another 167 hours after the one hour in the building, so to speak. So that's worship now, proper worship, where it's a lifestyle. Worship for, for me back when I was in the prosperity gospel and in that movement as a whole is more of a tool in the toolbox to build my empire or build my kingdom. It's a means to an end. And again, in the Bible church world per se, music is a part of a service order of a total worship experience quote or worship lifestyle. Where again, in contrasting with the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement, it's a means to an end emotionally. I'm really trying to prime people for whatever I'm going to get them to do. And then also worship is very me focused. The music is about me. Everything wants to elevate man so that uh, the message that is about man will settle in on hearts that are already so fixated on themselves. It's amazing because that's so countercultural to what we understand in the Bible because worship should be focused upon Christ. It should be focused upon God, not upon that idea of creating a sensation of emotionalism, like you just kind of mentioned. Um, what does we we talk about John four so often when we bring up the the context of of worship? That idea of worshiping in spirit and truth, with Jesus meeting with the woman at the well. Uh, expound upon that idea. What does worship in that context of worshiping in spirit and in truth? It, deal with in the in the prosperity gospel. Yeah. So in understanding what Jesus is talking about, you could boil it all down in a sort of pithy way to say he's not talking about, you know, where we're going to worship, but maybe how or the nature of the way that we worship. And it's in spirit and truth. And one of the most important things to do in uh, in understanding worship is to stay in balance. You have the wild emotionalism that Uh, I think we as humans have the tendency to swing to where we're riding the highs and we're crashing in the lows. We do that in life also where, uh, you know, when we're on top of the world, it's, you know, God is good. Everything's good. But then when things are bad, apparently God's not still good, though his nature is always good. I think that's an emotional wrestling match for people. And our worship reflects that is wild emotions. They make us feel good. We feel like we're having the right worship experience when the emotions are, are high and we're feeling it. But Jesus is describing a balance. It is spirit. It is zeal. It is passion. It is emotion-filled expression, yes, but it is always grounded in truth. It's spirit and truth. And I think we ought to pick on ourselves, per se, if we're a little more conservative, Mm -hmm. 
we have the habit to swing over into a kind of the, the frozen chosen mentality where it's just us and, and it, it can be cold orthodoxy. And so either way, I think there's two things happening. One, we're either trying to fake power in worship by manufacturing an atmosphere and an emotion, and it's not rooted in truth. And I think you swing the pendulum the other way and you, you forget power. You forget the joy of being an early Christian. You forget when you were like the woman at the well and, and in a way, and you were lost and Christ finds us and seeks us out. And suddenly you remember the joy that you had and you're just excited that there's a God who loves you and he's sought you and he saved you. And so I think we ought to not fake the power, but we want to be very careful that we don't forget the power of Christ and the one we're singing about and the joy we once experienced and not settle in to that cold orthodox kind of, you know, uh, I've got it figured out now, you know, keep the emotions under wraps here, people. New believers are fun to watch. They are out of their mind. They just radically got transformed. All they want is Jesus. They don't know all the ways to talk. They don't know the big words. They're just loving Jesus. So we want to remember both and stay in balance. Yeah. Oh, you're speaking my language right now. I I love it. So uh, now how does, because it feels like that idea of, of that, I'm just going to talk about the emotionalism side a little bit. Um, it, it's, it's more for my own gratification. I almost feel like that's, that's what it's bringing about. It's, 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 it becomes self-centered in, in a sense. And, and how is that dangerous when, when that worship becomes more of a self-centered rather than who it's supposed to be directed to? Yeah. Well, we're missing the point of worship and we are human and we are finite and we are forgetful. So we often go and roll back into the common denominator of self and it's selfishness and it's the focus on me. And just like Peter and the New Testament writers are often saying, it's not really hard. It's no big thing for me to remind you of these things. It's like pastors, our job is to say the same 50 things, a hundred different ways over the course of the years. We need to be reminded. Worship is not about us, it is about God. It is about high doxology, these high glory pinnacles. The glory is not about us. The glory is not a cloud. The glory is not the lights. The glory is not the building, the way it looks. It's not even the sound of other voices, which can be almost an emotional high. We say, oh, listen, all the voices singing, wow. We're all impressed with ourselves, and we've forgotten. We ought to only be impressed with one thing, and that's a person, it is our God. So glorifying God is the purpose of worship. And very often emotions and selfishness get in the way. Not that emotions are bad and not that we, we can't come in acknowledging that we're beggars, saying, Lord, I need you. I, I literally, quote unquote, selfishly, I need you. In other words, I can't do it on my own. I'm clawing. I, I need you to help me. That's a good uh, focus of self because it's the right view of self. Mm-hmm. I come in as a beggar and it's Christ who raises me up out of the ashes. So the more I'm focused on Him, the more I'm aligned with His will in worship. Yeah. Now, you're obviously passionate about this issue. This is probably this is something that's, that's near and dear yeah, to just, your heart. Just, just a bit. Just, just a little bit. Um, and, and not everybody in our audience knows exactly who and what your story is and everything. So, so tell us a little bit why this is such an important issue to you yeah. uh, and, and, and why this just drives you. Uh, in in getting this truth out. Yeah. So a couple of fun facts. I got saved by the same God 
mm-hmm. as everyone else. Okay. Uh, by, the same, by the same power. <laughs> and I believe in the same Jesus. I think we've got the same Jesus. I'm pretty sure we all do. Um, the one thing that is a little different or unique uh, is my last name. So Hin, obviously, you know, my uncle is Benny Hin, you know, one of those faith healers on TV and all that. And I, I grew up in that world, right in the center of it. And I worked with him, for him. I was the heir apparent in the family. The Elisha, Elijah dynamic is what is often prophesied and described in our world, where his mantle was prophesied as going to be falling on me and I was supposed to be the next guy. The reason for that is I'm Middle Eastern, family is Arabs, and in a Middle Eastern family, I'm the oldest next generation Hin boy, so naturally I'm supposed to kind of step into the the monarchical position, you know, after the fact. Well, God had other plans, and through a series of events, faithful people planting the seed of the gospel, uh, people who talked to me about the sovereignty of God, my now wife, who's an incredible woman of God, who asked me questions and, and was always gracious, but a lot of HMU moments helped me understand type things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys talk about this, or uh, you fly in Gulfstream jets, but uh, the people you serve don't. And you, you stay in hotel rooms upwards of $25,000 a night. Like in Dubai, we stayed in the Burj Al Arab. And, and you preach the gospel, but you live like celebrities. How, how does that all, how do you reconcile that? And I was forced to deal with those mm-hmm. questions. And the more I did, I would liken them. And a pastor of mine has done this as well. He's likened it in my life to cracks in the dam. Okay. And crack after crack, eventually that thing's just going to burst. And one day, uh, studying for a sermon, John chapter 5, not far after the woman at the well, healing at the pool of Bethesda. I go to preach. I'm a pastor at the time. I'm thinking, man, healing. I'm a hen. I got this nailed. Uh, get ready for this one, people. You know, real, real cocky and, and sure of myself. Mm-hmm. And in study, I was given a commentary and had no idea who the author was. Never really studied a lot of theologians. Didn't really worry about big words and stuff. Guy gives me a commentary. My pastor he says, this will help keep the train on the tracks. I begin studying and I'm noticing observations. Jesus heals one guy out of a multitude in John 5. He heals him immediately. And then the guy walks around with his pallet and the Pharisees come over and say, who told you you can pick up your pallet and walk? It's the Sabbath. You, know, you can't work. They had all these extra burdens on people. And the man John records didn't even perceive the translated word who Jesus was. So now I'm confused because word of faith, prosperity theology says, I know who Jesus is, and I get my healing because I know who He is, and I have enough faith. I give. I say things that are declarative. I can literally control my reality, or the way we used to say it is you can make it happen with your mouth. Well, name it and claim it doesn't always work. And here I'm faced with this man who, while other people moved Christ, certainly with to compassion, with faith. You have the the woman with the issue of blood who is crawling through the crowd, and and Christ is certainly moved, you see, in certain moments by people's faith and drive to to see Him, because they know who He is. And here's a man, though, who doesn't. So that confuses me. I turn to this commentary, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the author is unpacking these truths, and he says, here is the sovereign power of Christ and His healing ministry in action. And he goes on to unpack the sovereignty of God. I start remembering people like a coach in college. I played baseball down in Texas. He used to talk to me about the sovereignty of God, never pressing in too far. Yeah. Back then I drove a Hummer and was, you know, Mr. Hotshot, prosperity gospel lifestyle. And this guy just kept giving me truth, mm-hmm. cracks in the dam. And so I see the sovereignty of God in action. Then the commentator goes on to say, and 
therein is uh, evidence of the cruelest lie of faith healers today, that if uh, you just have enough faith, you'll get healed. And he says, the people that these fake faith healers fail to heal are guilty often or blamed of negative confession, unbelief, not given enough money, but God is sovereign in healing. And I am just blown away at that moment. I start weeping. I repented of my sin in study as a quote-unquote pastor, and the Lord transformed my life. That marked the beginning of losing my title. Uh, the godly men around me said, okay, you're not pastor anymore. You're PIT. You're pastor in training. Uh, seminary process, uh, guys kicking the rocks over in my life and really just analyzing things, getting into biblical counseling, walking that road. It's about a four-year journey, just yeah. digging in. And I still sensed, and the, the call to pastoral ministry was affirmed. Uh, the call and gift to preach was affirmed. And so godly men, older, wiser than me, got around me and supported it, and the Word anchored it all. And so in the end, though, I started getting asked about being a hen mm-hmm. or this topic or what I experienced. And so now everything's anchored to God's Word, just like other faithful men have done for decades. And yet there are some experiences I can share. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's more fun even now is I'm becoming irrelevant in many ways because so many other people are getting saved out of these movements. Mm-hmm. And you see young women and young men leaving schools of signs and wonders and, and running from it because God's saving them too. Yeah. And now they're telling their story. And so I'm excited to watch as Jesus does what he said he would do to build his church. You're becoming one of a mass of people Absolutely. coming out of Just it. one in the mix. Now I've watched YouTube videos of your Uncle Benny and, and stuff just out of curiosity. I mean, I've never been anywhere in, in the prosperity gospel. But um, I've seen just how some of the, do you call them rallies of events? I don't even Crusades. Crusades. There's, Crusades, there's yeah. the word. Um, I mean, they, they sing some of the same songs we, oh, we yeah. sing. Oh, yeah, and beautifully. Beautifully. I yeah. mean, they've got the large choir in the background. You've got this great rousing rendition yeah. of how great thou art going Absolutely. on as your Uncle Benny comes out with his arms oh, yeah. spread wide open. Yeah. Um, those songs that you sang there, I mean, how different are they to you? Like, how are you perceiving them then? Give us the before and after yeah. kind of look at some yeah. of those events. Well, I'm going to sing How Great Thou Art, no matter who sings it. I don't yeah. care. I love that song. <laughs> and the the better we can make it sound with gifted and talented people, yeah. praise God for that. Um, I would say this. Uh, a thought comes to mind about things that God designed and created and allow us to do or use. You think of the purity and godliness of the right intimacy and sexuality between a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. Well, what does the enemy seek to do? Use it, twist it, and cause it to be a stumbling block, cause it to be maligned, take what God created as beautiful, where the, the fire is supposed to stay in the fireplace, so to speak, and cause mass destruction through it. Well, there are so many beautiful songs and so many wonderful things that one might experience in a quote-unquote healing crusade. Beautiful music. Uh, The feeling of being in a place of unity. Uh, 20,000 voices singing to God in unison. Those are beautiful things that if you just experience them in the right context, under the right umbrella, let's say, of, of godliness and righteousness and holiness and proper understanding, 
beautiful things that many of us experience every Sunday. However, they can also be used as tools for deception. And we often see that throughout the New Testament, where uh, in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, those first pivotal verses of what Peter is going to talk about for an entire chapter, which is false teachers, uh, as uncomfortable as this may seem, he says that there will be those who secretly introduce destructive heresies. That means they're going to get in in what looks like the church. That means they're getting in where it sounds like the church. That means they're getting in where it even feels like the church, but it's not the church. So we want to really define what is and what isn't a biblical, orthodox uh, teacher and what is and isn't right worship in its right context. So you're saying essentially that our theology is going to affect our worship and, and who is creating that theology even and, and building that theology and who's associated with it, um, it shapes a lot of what we're doing. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, I've heard one pastor say that um, our hearts can only go as high in worship as they go as deep in theology. That's right. So uh, can you expound upon that yeah. even a little bit? Yeah, I think we first have to understand that doctrine is good. <laughs> theology is good. Theology is simply, it's, it's, theology is not suits and ties. <laughs> theology is not old hymns and, and that's all we sing. Theology literally translated is like, is God logic. Yeah. The, what my mind knows about my God. <laughs> so how in the world, whether you wear a suit and a tie or a v-neck and skinny jeans, what I know about God is what matters the most. The higher my knowledge of God, the higher my worship of God. High theology leads to high doxology. So I want to know my God, and I want to know Him rightly, and I want to honor Him, and I want to understand a right view of myself in light of who He is. So theology matters. Doctrine matters because it informs our worship. And so what we're, we're really leading to here is an understanding that it really doesn't matter what it sounds like. I don't, I'm not really concerned about what it all looks like. I want to know where it's rooted. Where does it come from? What is the knowledge of God that is the sort of umbrella over all that happens? The same reason that people might still give money, right? Generosity is a biblical truth. Well, the right theological mindset about giving leads to the right outworking of generosity and giving. A lot of people give money in the prosperity gospel under the wrong idea about God. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say that's a great illustration we can place right on worship through song. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many people who are very sincere sitting in, in your uncle's crusades and in churches that, that, that promote a prosperity gospel and a word of faith thing. How, how do we feel about these people who, who are just kind of blindly don't understand they're being deceived yeah. by some of these teachers? Well. You asked, how do we feel about them? I think that we need to feel like they're the mission field, okay. certainly. And we need to have uh, and a pastor, older pastor always tell me, sometimes I'd go through phases where I'd get real frustrated with why people are still caught up in this. He used to say, Costi, you need to have the heart of a child and the height of a rhino. You need to be tender and tough. And I think that's how we need to approach people who are caught up in these movements. Number one, we are firm in our theology. We are firm in the truth. We are uncompromising in it, but yet we're flexible with people. I'm walking with them. They're, they're not me. I'm converted. My job then is to throw the rope to them. They're the mission field. I want to walk with them. Some people work it out through a process of a few years. My process, thank God nobody gave up on me 
in that initial. I still have people come to me. A guy just came up to me uh, a Sunday ago when I preached here at our church and said, you know, I asked God for a sign about you. I said, well, okay. It was right after a sermon. He said, because I thought you were a phony just like everybody else. I said, well, okay, sir. You know, I've just preached a biblical sermon. And he said, but today was that sign. You know, I'm no mystic, but today was the sign. You're the real deal. And I thought, well, today's not the sign that I'm the real deal. It, it's the week prior. The week. If I keep preaching the Bible and Christ has truly saved me, I'm the real deal. What if everybody just walked around and said, yeah, I won't believe it until you, you know, give me five big theological words. You get an MDiv and then I'll listen to you. It, so many people are in this movement and it's going to take patient, gentle, godly, long-suffering people who are living what Jude writes about in the later verses, like Jude 17 to 23, where he says, have mercy on those who are doubting. Save others, snatch them from the fire. And then he says, have mercy on those on others with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. It's three categories. You've really got these people that are doubting. I want to be gentle and patient with them and walk with them. No, no hardness of heart towards them, even if they're deceived. And then you've got people you need to be snatching from the burning, like Coast Guard operation. You're coming in and you're going, hey, I want to meet for coffee. You're in something that's very dangerous and you're going in on a rescue operation. Then there's others have mercy on them with fear. It's saying, I got to keep healthy distance. Full disclosure, that's how I operate with my uncle. Uh, he, he knows, he has heard the truth. Uh, he understands certain truths. He's expressed displeasure in being challenged in those truths. And I, I, we're not hanging out at Thanksgiving. I need to keep healthy distance. And yet, at any given moment, if I see the heart begin to stir and turn towards Christ and be drawn to the truth, I want to be in there so fast that I get to be the first one to try to harvest the soul. So that's the way we should feel or act towards these people is they're the mission field. But don't for a second ever let that cause you or I or anyone to compromise. Uh, it's not okay. So I want to be on mission with them. I hope that helps. That helps greatly. Let's kind of go into the theology aspect. I know you love theology um, and, and, and the understanding of, of biblical things. And I've heard you talk a lot about the Christology, um, yes. particularly within the Word of Faith movement and, and how that has, has shown itself even in its music mm -hmm. and what it's producing. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let's, let's do a, a loving ripping off of the Band-Aid okay. here. Um, for, for me and for our church and our elders and, and many others in, in, quote unquote, the Bible church world, Bethel and Jesus culture are a no. We don't sing Bethel and Jesus culture. And before you know, people's blood pressure goes up, we, we should discuss and dialogue openly. Here's why, if we want to really understand different positions on this. We've gone no on Bethel and Jesus culture. Number one, I have family members, one of them whom recently actually left the, the Jesus culture orbit. She cut an album with them, all of that. So I was in that world, in deep, family ties in it. And so let's just even take the inner workings, the interpersonal stuff and, and certain things. Let's leave that out even. Let's just look theologically. When you look at Bill Johnson, who's the pastor of Bethel Church, Reading, when you look at the origins and the birthing of Jesus culture and Bethel music, Kim Walker Smith and, and all of them that are in that orbit, being honest, not just railing on everybody, let's stay theological, not personal. Their Christology is a heretical Christology, and here's why. 
page 29 on Bill Johnson's book from 2003, Destiny Image Publishing, when heaven invades earth, he says that Jesus did his miracles as a man in right relationship to God, and then there's an ellipsis, dot, 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 not as God. Later on, somewhere around pages 77 to 78 and beyond, he says that Christ laid aside his divinity. Here's why they say that. Because they tell people that Jesus did his miracles as a man to show us that we could too do signs and wonders as those empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. So, come to our school, the Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. Another guy, Todd White, who has the dreadlocks, has the Lifestyle Christianity School. My uncle has the Signs and Wonders School of Ministry. I helped my dad launch the Signs and Wonders School of Ministry in Canada. I had the material. It was based on Word of Faith preaching, Kenneth Hagin, Smith Wigglesworth, all the like, Kenneth Copeland and others. And we were teaching people how to do miracles, teaching them how to speak in tongues. Not, never, not even an argument over the gifts here. Never mind that it's a supernatural spirit of God, literally the Holy Spirit, distributing His gifts. We were teaching how to get the gifts. You can't do that. Even if you were a Pentecostal, rightly dividing the word of truth, you'd have to say that the giver is giving the gifts. We can't train or teach stuff at the altar and get people to babble the way we want them to. So regardless of denomination, regardless of where you're coming from, it's important we all understand the foundational and biblical truths we have to stick to as believers. So Bethel and Jesus culture are a no. When you study further, you realize that is what the Council of Chalcedon decried as heresy. It is Christological. It's not a debate about spiritual gifts. It's not a debate about whether God does miracles. I believe that we still serve a healing, powerful, supernatural God. I know you do too. It is about Christology. That's tier one. That's like us and, and maybe Mormons saying, we're, we're pretty different. Or, or us and, and, and a Muslim saying, we're pretty different because of our belief about Christ. He never laid aside his divinity. It's as many a theologian have said it rightly. He was truly God, truly man, all the way through. Never once do we see in Scripture that he laid aside his divinity. When we look at Philippians 2, we see that it is a humbling He's, it's, it's, it's subtraction by addition. He's coming down, taking on, adding humanity to his divinity, never laying his divinity aside. So uh, a long answer to what you asked, but I want people to understand why. Now, other churches decide to change lyrics, or they say, well, we're going to sing the ones that are theologically sound. I think you're into a methodological discussion there. Um, I don't want at our church people to look up at the CCLI uh, graphic there at the bottom on the on the screens if you have them at your church. I don't want them to see Bethel or Jesus culture. I don't want them to because I don't want them ever thinking we're endorsing that. And I am thinking not about the mature. I'm thinking about the weak. And I think that's Pauline, the Apostle Paul, making sure that we are guarding the way we use our Christian liberty. Am I free to sing a theologically sound song that Bethel wrote? Sure, I'm free. Is it sin? No. It's technically not to sing theological truths. Mm -hmm. However, I don't want to cause one of these little ones, new believers, people in my church to stumble and then have to help them navigate. Well, we said that it's Christological heresy. We said that this can lead people astray. But don't worry, we'll remind you every week and interrupt worship to say, hey, here's one of those Bethel songs. And now we're in the weeds navigating. So we have made a decision. So it's almost as if you're trying to avoid giving them a gateway drug into 
It industry. is. So obviously everybody knows that um, the YouTube videos of your uncle throwing the jacket around and slaying thousands of people at a time and, and everything, that's it's become a joke on YouTube now and, and people don't take it as seriously anymore. Uh, but the prosperity gospel and word of faith movement is still active. It is rebranding itself. Uh, how has that been happening? Yeah. Or where are we seeing that? Yeah, I, that's, first of all, a great question, because you look back, people say, like, where did the prosperity gospel start? Or where did all this begin? And they want some you know, history lesson. Just go back to the book of Genesis in the beginning, when the serpent whispered to Eve and said, did God really say, you know, undermining the truth of, of God? That's ultimately where this all reaches back to. Um, now, what has happened is, like you said, the YouTube jacket, the, you know, somebody did the Star Wars lightsaber, all this, this craziness on, on YouTube. People make a joke because the gag is up. People begin to understand, okay, this is not, that, that's why eventually, you know, ministries decline, but a new generation rises up and the enemy is very crafty, and he simply rebrands and repackages. So now what we're seeing is the less weird, the less weird. Weird didn't work after a while. I remember growing up, and I stopped inviting friends to my church because it was too weird. You couldn't sell that anymore. And so what we're seeing now is the guys like, you know, the, the Stephen Furtick's who, who would hold to word of faith theology. That's, that's not a... a you know, that's the blessed life stuff, the prosperity gospel. Um, you've got guys like uh, Joel Osteen, who they are essentially America's pastor now. They got the big white smile. They got the nice, long, flowy hair, the full head of hair, and they are on Oprah, and they're on their TV program, and they're helping everyone discover the champion in them. Everything's good news, no bad news. God has made you the head, not the tail. Everything's job promotions. Everything's happiness. Everything's prodigal children returning home. Everything is just chipper, peachy, happy, healthy, wealthy. It is the prosperity gospel, again, but rebranded, repackaged, no flying white jacket, no people falling over. It's just pep talks. It's motivational speaking. So the enemy is crafty. He knows how to rebrand for a new generation. And I'll link that to, you know, with the Bethel and the Jesus culture conversation is I think this too. There has become, uh, because of cold orthodoxy and certainly because of mass deception, and I believe that the enemy is working in every way possible to introduce destructive teachings. The church has been biblically illiterate largely for 30 or 40 years, while the seeker-driven movement mostly just kept people coming in to have a Disneyland experience on Sunday. So people stop knowing their Bibles. And what happens when we don't have the ability to wield the sword of the Spirit? Well, the most important piece of the armor, which is both defensive and the only offensive piece, is not being wielded effectively. We're going to have a problem. So here we are today where churches like Bethel and Jesus Culture are selling with mass media tactics, great social media, great look, great vibe, high emotion, high energy, high passion. We've got the power and a whole generation that is tired of seeing their mom and dad and their cold orthodoxy not offer them much has been driven to that. I think that the enemy has used our weaknesses in biblical literacy, weak pulpits, weak churches to allow a generation to be swept away. And so what we need to do now is raise the standard, preach the word, preach with passion, have both spirit and truth, get right back in the game, not sit around kind of in our little holy huddle worrying about ourselves and our big words, but get out there, 
to preach the truth and go on a rescue operation for people. It almost seems to me that, that one of the ways these rebranded Word of Faith Prosperity Gospels are getting their name out there. It, it is through the slick social media. It's through all that. But the way they're infiltrating is through their music in so many ways. Absolutely. I mean, you have elevation worship. You have Jesus culture. It's, it is that, that subtle poison being dropped into the church without a lot of fanfare yeah. that it's coming in. Yeah. And, and it's showing up. And I know I've heard Conrad Mbewe, um, that, a great African pastor, talk about how the number one export out of uh, America is the prosperity gospel. But we're also export, these guys are also exporting inwardly within the church um, and just doing it subtly. Is that, is that something you've seen uh, in, in your experience? Yes, I have. Yeah. And music is such a strong avenue into these circles and into an entire generation because people are constantly listening to music. We as human beings, we love music. Uh, that is important. And just like when there are false teachers being raised up, we need to have bold kind of reformation type of preachers again, a revival in the pulpit. There, there has to be something in the music world. We don't need to look like the world. We don't need to act like the culture. Absolutely not. But where's the passion? Uh, there are so few bands and, and singers. If you just did a T-chart and said, give me all the people that are spirit and truth. Give me the passion. Give me something for my generation. Give me something that, that looks like 2019 that's passionate and only full of truth. Not linked to false, false teachers. Linked to sound, biblical, passionate warrior preachers that aren't compromising. That is a it's, short list. Yeah. Go to the other side. And, and find me all the false teachers with the bold passion and the YouTube clips and the Instagram stuff and everything real rah-rah, and then link all the bands and show me all the singers. They've got the passion. Problem is they don't have the truth. So, and I know this probably picks on our camp more than any other, but we have got to have a generation of gifted, talented, stable, doctrinally sound people and individuals. And I know they're out there. I know you're one of them. I know the Gettys are there. I know like Sovereign Grace Music and many others. I know there are some, but there needs to be not just a revival in the pulpit through preaching, but a revival or a reformation in our music as well. Now, one thing that I know the, the prosperity gospel really misses out on is the theology of suffering mm -hmm. and, and, and songs of lament. I know in our church, we, so many of the songs we sing help us in our lament, in our grief, in our trials. When, when we're sitting in hospital rooms next to somebody who's, who's going, when I'm sitting with a widow who's, who's grieving and the songs we sing and, and everything, how does the prosperity gospel when all they're doing is looking at the great grandiose and everything, and they miss out on these songs of lament, which the Psalms are so full of. How do they ignore that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how they ignore it, except <laughs> that they do. Uh, I would liken the result to being very malnourished because all you eat is, you know, French fries, let's say, uh, or, or chips. If you're only ever eating that, and you never eat other food groups and you don't balance it, you're gonna be malnourished, you're gonna have a problem, you're gonna have heart disease. If you do that spiritually, it's spiritual heart disease or a spiritual mind disease, which we have a lot of the time in the church today. Here's what I mean by that. If you're only singing about the good stuff and the highs and God is for me and God loves me and he's all about me and he wants to kiss me and he's really into me, 
Well, what, what happens when the cancer diagnosis comes? What happens when you have to birth a stillborn? What happens when you lose your mother and a son in the same year? What happens when you can't pay the mortgage? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when the car breaks down? What happens when you start experiencing some trials, whether they be fiery ordeals or, or minor ones? We need to have a theology of suffering. We need to have music for lament, music for suffering. We need to, almost looking and you read through the Psalms, what a beautiful balance. I was just talking about this with my wife the other day. She's reading through a psalm that, that is like full lament. And then reading another one, and it's, The Lord is my rock and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And you're, you're just walking this road of beautiful worship with David while he goes through the ups and downs of life with one common theme. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Oh, when I'm on the, the mountain high, is oh, you're my rock and my redeemer. No matter what, no matter what, I'm focused on who God is, no matter where I am. So I think that's so vital. We need to be balanced in, in both areas. Yeah. Well, our, our Steadfast Conference exists to, to support the local church, uh, particularly in the Bakersfield area, and, and to encourage and, and bring them. And that's what we've been trying to do with this conference is to, to bring the church together and, and to understand what God has called us to in worship. And, and it's been wonderful. Would you have any final words to encourage us in what God has called us to as worshipers? Yeah. Let's keep having in our churches or start having, if we're not, good, faithful, robust, biblical dialogue and discussion. Let's try to minimize debate, but sometimes we, there's some good back and forth. Let's sharpen one another on what true biblical worship is and be open to change on both sides. So uh, when we're just singing hymns and we can't sing anything else, and don't you dare add in a song that you might hear on the radio and you keep the drummer out of the, out of the sanctuary now. I don't want none of that in my... Well, you got that right over yeah, there. Yeah, we got but... some drums in our church. So <laughs> let, let's be open to hearing the, the, the voices and the music and the sounds and the instruments that we can use to worship God and to create a, a beautiful sound and aroma for Him. And then on the other side, uh, let's be open to looking in the mirror. Are we riding the wave of emotionalism? Are we manipulating people? Are we manufacturing an atmosphere to, to meet our end and then saying, well, well God wants this, so, so we must. Are we using something to justify our own desire? Uh, we want to be real honest there. So both sides having robust discussion and trying to land as close to what God has given us as possible. Trying to balance that, as we said in the beginning, the spirit and spirit the truth. And truth. And spirit everything. and truth. Well, this has been so wonderful. I've enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for, for yeah. agreeing to, to meet with us and to, to share your, your heart on this important issue. Thank you. It's easy when you got a Canadian brother. You know, yeah. we got to stick together, you know. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you so much. God bless. Thanks. Thank you.